Well, good morning, Ozark. It is a beautiful day to be right where we are. Let me just add my voice to President Proctor's and Isaac's in saying, welcome back. Uh, welcome to chapel, or in many of your cases, quarantine. <laughs> welcome to 2021. Can we just have a moment of silence for 2020? Okay, that's long enough, you know. <laughs> We're all ready to be done. And, and I know it's become kind of cliche to bag on the last year, but by most counts, it really was a terrible 12 months, you know? Like Kobe dies in January, and that was hard enough for some of us, but then the whole world just starts falling apart, and it felt like for the rest of the year, our morning news was like a daily damage report. Sickness, death, lockdowns, economic unrest, rising unemployment, racial tension, civil tension, election turmoil, if you could believe it, increased polarization, and like literal fires out west and down under. If somebody had written a, a movie script, if somebody had seen into the future and written a movie called 2020, only including actual events that took place, no studio in Hollywood would buy the rights because they would all say, no, 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 that's unrealistic. That could not all ever happen in one particular year. It's, it's probably also the most over-memed year on record, you know? Like, we've seen it all, we've said it all, we're probably kind of tired of talking about it, I totally get it, but I have felt for a while, it's been bothering me for a bit, I felt for the last few months like there was one piece of unfinished business that we needed to take care of, that we need to find the perfect breakup song that we could direct toward 2020, you know what I mean? And it's been bugging me for a bit, and so I'm like, all right, and this is the moment we gotta figure, what this, figure this out. And I'm not, I'm not really a music buff, and the internet is big, so I didn't really know where to start. But I, thankfully, I found this article on The Ringer that was like the 50 greatest breakup songs of all time, and I made my way through the whole thing. It was probably the strangest hour of sermon prep I've ever done. <laughs> it was just, and I gotta be honest, as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, some of y'all are gonna need some of these songs this semester, let's be real. So again, theringer.com, you can find it. It's all there. Anyway, so I'm working through this, and, and you start to realize there's these different categories of breakup songs, you know? There's the, there's the um, you know, like, uh, I, I miss you and I wish we could get back together. I don't, you guys probably don't know who Tony Braxton is, or, or like the classic song, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone, that type of song. Then there's the songs where it's like, um, like I love you, but I, I know it's not good for either of us, and so we need to stay away. Like, Boys to Men made a whole career on such songs. And then there's this other category of, like, we both know we're getting back together, but I'm really, really mad, and I'm going to write a song about it. And we could just all tip our hat to Beyonce, because she is the queen of that category, as you're all aware. But then there's this last category, and it's like, it's like the all caps category. It's over. I'm done. We're through. And when I, when I noticed this, it's like, okay, that's definitely the category, but what's the song, you know? And you guys are probably too old. I don't even know if you know who Carly Simon is, at least most of you. And then you guys are probably even too old to like remember JT and Britney in, in real time. So I'm thinking, okay, it's got to be the right song. But then I found it. And I don't know if we have any Swifties in the room. But your girl, Taylor, yeah, your girl was always destined to be the one, if only because she's given us so much material to work with. She nailed it. Some of you guys know where this is going. There's this song that dropped back in 2012 called We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. You know this song? Like the lyrics are neither deep nor profound, but the refrain <laughs> captures the moment perfectly. Here's just what she says. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. You go talk to your friends, talk to my friends, talk to me. Some of you guys are singing right now under your masks. But we are never, ever, ever, ever getting back together like ever. It's perfect, you know. <laughs> it's over and we're glad it's over. But you guys probably know where we're going with this. It's kind of a natural next question. 
what if, what if 2021 isn't any better? What, what if it's worse? Is a question, I haven't really thought about this question. It was a question that I heard from my pastor on the last sermon I heard in 2020. He was trying to prep us for what's coming. And honestly, let's be real, the last three weeks have not exactly made it seem like a silly question. But I kind of want you to think about it in a little bit more specific way. I don't so much mean all that's going on in the world. Like, what if personally this next year is one of the hardest years of your life? And not because of tragedy, but failure. Like, what if, what if things level out globally and nationally? This is not a prediction, just a thought experiment. But what if things level out in the world and everybody, for the most part, gets back to normal, but your new normal, your next 12 months are marked not by success or gain, but by repeated loss, by a succession of failures? We're going to build out what this might mean for you as we go, but it's a, it's a question worth considering because if we learned anything thus, Lear, it's that you don't know what's coming next. So today we're going to talk about failure and we're going to talk about success. I want you to go ahead and take your Bibles out and uh, turn them to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read a story from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. And then, in addition to that primary uh, narrative text, we're going we're gonna to look at, we're going to kind of just grab a few verses from Romans. So you guys can stay open to Luke 10, and, and I'm going to read after that a few verses from across Paul's letter to the Romans, and that will serve as our text for this morning. Let's see what it says. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, here's how it goes. So after this, the Lord appointed 70, or 72, depending on the manuscript, 72 others, and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. But do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into a street and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. It worked. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then from Romans, first of all, chapter one, verse five and six. 
It says, through Jesus, him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Chapter three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's say a quick prayer. Father God, we thank you for these words, these texts. And our prayer today is, what's well, just what President Proctor said earlier, that your voice would be the one that we hear and that we would take it as truth and rely upon it as everything for us. So speak, for we are indeed listening. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, President Proctor and Isaac both mentioned, we're going to be in this series called uh, A Broken World, A Better Way. And, and while the title is fairly descriptive, we're going to be talking about some of the ways in which our world has fallen and, and therefore falling apart. And in these places of brokenness, we're going to be receiving the good news, the gospel, that Jesus is the way up and out. But we don't just want to say Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. We want to talk about, we want to show how he is the answer, and we want to follow him along that path. And within that, my assignment today is to address the pressure to succeed. So let's start by defining some terms. You may know what these words mean, but it's beneficial to think it through. Success is the accomplishment of an aim. When you set out to do something and you do it, when you, you complete or finish a task well as you desire. To. And I want to be clear because it might be, I don't know, easy to misunderstand. Success is not a bad thing. And today we're not talking about the types of success that are dumb or lame or waste of time or whatever. It's not like we're talking about, you know, trying to be famous or make a lot of money. No, 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 no. We're talking about like good success. Let me just make a couple of quick observations from Luke chapter 10. We're not going to try to exposit the whole text, but it's going to serve as a springboard for a key truth we see in here. But let's just make a couple of observations. One of the things that we need to see about Luke 10 is that success is good in this case because the work is good. Jesus is he's appointing 70 or 72, depending on, the, again, the manuscripts. He's appointing 70 to come alongside him uh, and to engage in ministry with him. And, and if you know your Bibles, you, you maybe recall that this story reminds us of something that happens in Numbers chapters 11, where Moses is together with his assistants, Joshua and Aaron, leading the people out of slavery. And in Numbers 11, he actually calls together 70 elders to help lead in this mission. So this is Jesus' moment where he's enlisting help for his own new Exodus mission. And it happens in the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus, Luke tells us, he sets his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's got his focus on Jerusalem where he has an appointment to victoriously die. And what these people are doing is that they're sort of these delegates who are announcing his saving death. I mean, this is important work. This in Luke chapter 10 is a preview of the church's mission in Acts where we announce his saving death from the other side of things. This is the mission we've joined. This is kingdom work. This is ministry. This matters. 
So success is good because the work is good, but the second observation is that kingdom success is secondary to salvation. I think we see in this text that the goodness of both is affirmed, but Jesus emphasizes only one of them as worthy of celebration. There are two imperatives, two commands in chapter 10, verse 20. Do not celebrate that the spirits submit to you. Do celebrate that your names are written in heaven. It's a strange thing to say about success in the most worthy of causes. Success. Well, we're not just talking about success. We're talking about the pressure to succeed. So what is pressure? Pressure is, uh, well, technically it's force applied in a given area, but you kind of know what that means in actual experience. Think of a a headache. It just feels like your head's kind of closing in on itself. Or think about if you're holding a balloon in your hands and and you're squeezing the balloon. That's pressure applied in a given area. And if you continue to squeeze, you know what's gonna happen. That thing's eventually gonna pop. And, And we feel this. We feel this pressure, some of us occasionally, others pretty much like all the time, and we feel like a vulnerable balloon that's under literal stress, squeezed in by the expectations and demands of our social circles and our inner Pharisee. Be better, do more, accomplish, be productive, have it all together, look good, don't fail. It's why when we lose or fail at things that matter to us, not at things that don't, but it's why when we lose or when we fail at something that's important to us, we, I mean, it hurts somewhere down deep within. And, and it's why when we, when we win or when we're successful at something that matters to us, sometimes we feel elated, other times just relieved that it's over. I made the shot, I got the grade, I answered correctly, or at least it didn't sound like a total idiot. They laughed at my joke, he noticed me. She said, I love you too. Why do we care so much about not failing? That's because we believe that our worth and safety are determined by how we perform on life stage, by what we do. I do want to be careful. I don't want to overstate the case. That's not the whole reason. I mean, it's really natural and good not to want to fail. Like, you should care if you succeed at the worthy tasks that you undergo. But sin corrupts everything, including our natural inclinations. And in our weakness, this belief is a bigger part of our need to succeed than we care to confess. So we internalize this pressure to succeed because we believe that our worth and safety are determined by what we do. And this is true, not just of some, but all of us. So we today have this tendency, we like to kind of categorize or, or type ourselves and each other. And, and that can be a helpful thing, but there's a sense in which we can sometimes desire, or excuse me, list the desire to succeed as an attribute of a certain kind of person. It's an achiever or a red or a three. Those are the people that desire to succeed. And it seems to me that these types are helpful and they, they kind of help us to define our personal brand of success but I don't so much think they either confirm or deny our need for it. Now, you may define success less in terms of applause and more in terms of intimate relationships or, or, or having enough fun or being in control or maintaining peace. Your target might be different than somebody else's, but the point is you have one, and when you don't hit the target, you hurt, worry, fear. I'll be honest with you. Personally, I blame Rudolph. Yeah, not Giuliani or Boltman, like the cute little reindeer. I'll sing about this over the break, and 
I know he's cute, but this hit me because this, you know, you can't really avoid the song over Christmas. And you know the story. You start with this awkward, angsty teenager with a weird nose, and it sort of excludes him from meaningful social interaction among the reindeers. I kind of think he's a teenager, but I don't know that the story specifies. But he's this sort of awkward character. He's, he's weird, and, and what's worse, he's an outcast. But by the end, he's the hero, and you know why because his oddity proved useful and he was finally able to do something that he could be proud of and that Santa could be proud of. Don't forget that part. Now, I know I'm being a little nitpicky, right? It's just a children's story and it's a good story with an important point. You should keep singing it, but don't be blind. Listen to the story. Pay attention to the way that it's framed. You know, the first words of the song are not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know the first words of the song, right? You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? You fast forward to the end of this, and by the time we reach the end of the song, the end of the movie, the end of the story, this, this reindeer who had been excluded is now loved and celebrated with glee and promised to, quote, go down in history. Now, maybe going down in history as the most famous anything is not your thing. Maybe legendary status is not what gets you up in the morning, but what is? Because you do want to be loved and celebrated with glee if possible, so you feel a pressure to succeed. And if you don't figure out how to fail, you will be destroyed by your need to succeed. You know, I, I, I fear I'm kind of making this sound too psychological. It is that, but it's also more. I, you can't actually genuinely succeed in most of the things that you're gonna wanna do until you come to terms with this. Think about some of the things that we're gonna be talking about in this series. We're gonna be talking about things like family issues. We're gonna be talking about mental illness. We're gonna, about, we're gonna be talking about racism in this series. And, and you think about some of these heavy themes and ways in which our world is broken. Like, let's just say, let's just say I have a mental illness, but I have a hard time admitting that because a part of my understanding of being a successful person is, is to be mentally strong, you know? And so I might hear about these resources to grow from this, but if I can't even consider the possibility that this is me, then there's no way for me to actually heal because I can't fail. It's even more the case in some of the morally loaded ones. Like, let's just say, let's just say I'm a bad father or let's say that I've got some racist thoughts and feelings in me. If I can't even consider the possibility that I am what I regard as a total failure in these particular portions of life, if I can't even like stare that in the face and acknowledge it, then there's no way I'll actually become a good father or citizen or friend. We're talking about real consequences for yourself and others. And if we don't figure out how to fail, we will be destroyed by our need to succeed. I realize this is pretty bleak. It's not a very jolly way to ring in the new year. The system of all systems is broken, but that's the point of the series. There is a better way. And in this case, the gospel frees us for success because it frees us from our need to succeed. The pressure's off, but the liberation is painful. So the gospel's first word sort of like rips out the rug from underneath our attempts to appear to have it all together. You know the verse, I learned it as a kid, Romans 3, 23, for all sin and fall short of God's glory. I imagine many of you have been taught that the word sin means to miss the mark, hamartia, means to miss a mark. And that you, oftentimes we use the archery example, there's a target and you miss the target. Yeah, another word for that is failure. 
So maybe we should define hamartia as failure in this particular case, because that's what Paul's saying. For all have failed and fallen short of God's glory. You and I were made to reflect God's glory to one another, and we have not succeeded in this. That's what the gospel tells me. The world begins with affirmation. You're fine just the way you are, but the gospel begins by confronting the brutal fact that we'll never live up to our ideals, much less God's. I have failed, and I fail as a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a teacher, friend. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. We don't like this. And so we, we hide or we find some way to relieve the pressure or we, we strut, we peacock. Don't you see how beautiful and intimidating I am? We put out all our feathers and, and list all our accomplishments and, and try to show ourselves to be bigger than we know ourselves to be. But when I hide from the scary truth, I inadvertently protect myself from the very truth that can put me back together again. The gospel's doing something it's redirecting your attention. It's redirecting your identity to the right source. Ultimately, success and failure matter to us because it's not just an issue of success and failure. It's an issue of identity. It's an issue of my core sense of who I am. That's why it touches so deeply. Y'all ever heard of this idea called the looking glass self? I imagine some of you psych students and psych professors are probably familiar with this. I'd never heard of it before, but a pastor friend of mine from Detroit mentioned it last month in a meeting we were in, and, and I started looking it up, and I've actually found it to be a pretty helpful idea. It was an old idea. It's from like 1902 by this American sociologist named Charles Horton Cooley. And the idea is fairly simple. Our sense of self is generated by, we, by how we imagine other people imagining us. I think you guys are looking at the picture. Yeah, this picture is a pretty common graph to kind of help explain the concept. And so you have this person and, and he sees himself as he thinks he is seen by different people in his life. You know, his mom and dad see him as this saint. His girlfriend sees him as this strong person. His older brother sees him as this weakling and his ex-girlfriend sees him as the devil. You know, and that's kind of the process that this guy describes is we imagine how we appear to others. We imagine what other people see when they see us and, and how they are judging us. We sort of, whether we realize it or not, we play this game in our minds and, and we imagine what they think and then we react to what we think is their judgment of that appearance and this is how we develop a sense of who we are through these perceived judgments of other people. So we learn, to, we learn to see ourselves through our perception of others' perception of us and we act accordingly. It's why we like to hang out with people who think like us or who tell us what we want to hear. Now, I'm sure we could talk all day about this, but hopefully this is enough for now. It raises some really good questions. Whose opinion do you care about? Think about the question. I know you don't care about everybody's. So whose do you care about? Whose idea of success has become your own? Which mirror are you looking at most often and most deeply? Whose judgments are you letting define you? So the gospel redirects it redirects our attention to one mirror, to one opinion, to one judgment. What does God see when he looks at you? What does God think of you? And at first, that's a terrifying thought because he knows. He knows all the things that you've not told anybody else in this room. Y'all know we hide. Now, I'm not gonna do this to you in this room. I don't think this is an appropriate setting, but I've done this in smaller contexts where I'll just ask a room. I'll promise nobody's gonna be asked to say anything, but knowing that nobody's gonna be asked to say, I'm not asking you to do this, but I'll say knowing that nobody's gonna be asked to say anything, I just want you by a show of hands, if you would acknowledge that there's some secret that you've not shared with anyone because you're ashamed of it. And most of the time, most of the hands go up. We hide, but the gospel comes along and says, by the way, he knows all your secrets, 
And this is why some of you hate God or you're terrified of him. Because deep down, you're not really sure if he can be trusted with your secrets, not really. And yet here's this gospel, here's this good news that tells you that the jig is up, that the secrets must be exposed. That is the first word of the gospel, but the gospel doesn't stop there. It announces something else, something new, something good. For all have failed and fall short of God's glory and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The gospel says, steady your gaze on his. Don't look away because you will see in his eyes a reflection of the crucified Christ through whom he sees you. And this matters most. And of course, what the letters articulate, the gospel depicts, which brings us back to Luke chapter 10 and this image that Jesus gives us of a book with your name in it. You don't, you don't need a lot of background to understand the idea of what Jesus is saying, though I do recommend grabbing a decent concordance or Bible dictionary and just working your way through the biblical references to the book of life. There's only a couple dozen of them at most. If uh, you know, researching breakup songs was the strangest hour of research I've done in a long time, researching the book of life was probably the most encouraging to my heart. It's, it's usually called the book of life. Sometimes it's just called the book in, in our text, it's just Jesus says there's a list of names that are written in heaven. We get the full name of this thing in the book of Revelation where it's called the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb slain from the creation of the world. I love this image. It's a metaphorical list of names, the names of those whose safety is secure, whose salvation is assured in Christ by grace through faith. You know, this all makes me think of a recent conversation we had with our daughter Claire about throwing a punch. Random, I know. So one of the most frequent questions that I hear from my son is, can I punch you in the chest? He asks me this on probably a daily basis because he knows he's only allowed to punch me and only when I know it's coming. And so it's just a thing that we do. And uh, anyway, I've actually taught both my kids to throw a decent punch. It's the important things in life, you know? And, and, uh, and our daughter, Cla- I mean, Carson's this little like mass of a, of a just fireball and, and he just, it's not surprising when he throws a punch. Our Claire is very sweet. She's not a large person. She's not aggressive at all, but I'm telling you, you don't want to catch that left hook, like it's for real. She's got some power in that thing. I'm not serious. Anyway, so, uh, so we're, you know, in the kitchen and they're taking hands, throwing hands at my hands. And, uh, and then I tell them, as I often do, I, I hope you never have to use this particular skill, but you need to know how, you know, tighten your fist, straighten your wrist and swing straight through, that kind of thing. And then, as is often the case, we have this little dialogue afterwards about how we don't just go around hitting people. And then, but Claire actually surprises us. And then she says out of nowhere, well, I definitely want to punch someone. And we're like, excuse me, what? She's like, I want to punch someone. And I look at her like, why? And she said, without hesitating, she says, so I can prove that girls are more than just a sack of potatoes. (laughs) Where is this coming from? Turns out there's some gender-related tension at the kickball field during recess at Old Webb City Middle School. So we got to know the story a little bit. And, And I don't know if my words landed, but we talked about this later, and you can imagine what I said. So first of all, amen to your truth, baby. The gap between you and a sack of potatoes is too wide to measure. But let me be clear. You have nothing to prove. Those boys on the playground, idiots. All of them. I maybe go to heart a little bit, but it's my little girl, so you understand, fellas. You were junior hires once. So no, don't pay attention to what they think. Don't care. I know who you are. I know what you are. And I know better than them. 
your identity, your worth, your safety in this big scary universe, secure with me. And make no mistake, I want her to kick as hard as she can and run as fast as she can and win as often as she can. I also want her to know, though, that she has nothing to prove. And for this, she has to make two moves on repeat in her mind. She has to, first of all, choose to see herself as I and her mother see her. She has to choose to see herself through the right lens. And then secondly, she has to remember that we see her as belonging, as holy, valuable, good, and most importantly, loved as ours. And the parallel is not perfect, but I trust you can see the truth. To be justified, there's that Romans word, to be justified means in practical terms that before God you have nothing else to prove. According to Romans 5, grace is a place not that you once were, but a place in which you now stand. You heard the verse, therefore since we have been justified through faith, we've received peace with God. We have it. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This is where you live. But for this to take root, you've got to make two moves on repeat. You gotta first of all, see yourself as God sees you. And then you gotta trust that God sees you as his, not because of anything that you've done, not because of your past or present or future success, but by grace through faith in the Christ who died for your sins, whose perfect righteousness is yours to borrow forever. The gospel frees us for success by freeing us from the need to succeed. So where do we go from here? Well, two things that I want you to take with you and for the sake of time and focus, the first one's just gonna be oh so quick. I'm not gonna develop the point at all. I'm just gonna say it and then you can follow up with study or thought as you deem appropriate. The first thing that I think we have to do if we're going to be freed from the pressure to succeed is we have to define success properly. Specifically, we have to redefine success as the obedience of faith. If you hear me saying that trying hard is pointless, then you're not understanding what I'm saying. If you hear this sermon as a justification for laziness or for inactivity, then you misunderstand. No, because you are free to fail, you're free to try. So try, work hard, do good, be successful, but check your definition of success. Romans is bracketed at the beginning and the end by this phrase, the obedience of faith. It's a strange phrase, and you can even tell the translators don't know what to do with it. Lately, they're saying things like the obedience that comes from faith. That's fine, but it's one phrase. It's together. It's like hard to note. Faithful obedience, obedient faith. How do you describe this? And the point is it's relational. It's that if you trust God completely, you'll always do what he says. And this is precisely, this is precisely and only what Jesus calls from you. And so what you gotta do personally is make it your goal to trust God actively and completely today. Like make it your personal goal to be good at this, trusting him so much that you always do what he says. And then from a relational standpoint, from a social standpoint, commend people for doing this everywhere you see it. We commend people for, for talent. We commend people for, for public things, but maybe we should do a little bit more commending for obedience. Hey, I know that you have some desires that you wanna act out maybe from a sexual standpoint, from an anger standpoint, but I know that you resisted them today. Good job, well done. That's awesome. That's, that's faith, that's trust. Hey, I, I know that you could have said something in that moment to participate in the gossip, but I saw you change the subject. Thank you. Well done. That's success. So we redefine success as the obedience of faith. And then the second thing is you receive your worth and safety from the gospel. We could have said rejoice in the gospel or take comfort in the gospel or just believe in the gospel, but I wanna be specific. 
You don't have to invent a self that is interesting enough or on trend enough to prove something, to show that you're worth something, to be safe in this life and the next. You don't have to find or discover who you are because your true identity is not discovered or deduced. It is revealed in the gospel. And according to Jesus, what matters most is not your failure or success, but whether your names are written in heaven. As Proctor said it, he will never lose track of you. No, no, when you do, whenever it is, and hopefully it's a long time from now, but whenever you approach the gates of heaven, what you're gonna hear is, it says here that your name is on the list. Welcome to eternity. So remember that when you fail, you feel like a loser, when your jokes don't land, when your friends don't text you back, when you get the answers wrong, when the internship goes to somebody else, when you live in the wrong town or work at the wrong church, when all the other churches are growing faster than yours and all the other sermons are getting more hits than yours and you feel like nobody cares what you think and when you get dumped, when you get ignored, when you lose, don't be sad, be disappointed, have the feels, it's normal, but don't despair. And don't hide or deny your failure. It's like Dr. King said in a sermon called Shattered Dreams, which you should all read, it's a great sermon. He says, place your failure at the forefront of your mind and stare daringly at it. When you fail, look up to the heavens and say, thank you, God, for this moment. You welcome failure as a friend who's come to remind you of the gospel. And you regard as a sinful temptation the impulse to anchor your worth and safety in your accomplishments or your productivity or what you do. No, you have what it takes to fail. And that is why, at least some of the time, you have what it takes to succeed. The gospel frees us for success by freeing us from our need to succeed. So remember this when you succeed, when you feel like a conqueror, a champion, a success. By all means, take appropriate pride in your effort. Work hard, take pride in your work, but you find your comfort, you find your rest, you find your identity in the gospel alone, and you regard as a sinful temptation the impulse to anchor your worth and safety in what you do. And just listen to Jesus. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And now to him who was able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory, forever through Jesus Christ, amen, amen.